Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Renee Fleming is America's diva, one of our greatest sopranos. You don't need to be an expert in opera or classical music to know that. All you need to do is just, you know, listen to her sing. In a career that spanned three decades, Fleming has performed in venues around the world, singing in acclaimed productions of operas composed by Mozart, Puccini, Verdi, Dvorak, and more. And even outside of the classical world, she is the only classical singer to have ever sung the national anthem at the Super Bowl. She performed at Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. And lately, she's been working in musicals. One musical in particular, The Light in the Piazza, just wrapped in Los Angeles with productions on the way in Chicago and Sydney. It's based on a 1960s novella by Elizabeth Spencer, and during its Broadway run, the show won six Tony Awards, including Best Original Score and Best Orchestrations. It's set in Italy in the summer of 1953. Renee plays Margaret, a wealthy American. She's touring the country with her daughter Clara. Clara is 26 and something of a free spirit, and in Italy, she falls in love. But Margaret's worried about her daughter, who's never really been in love before. She doesn't know if Clara can handle living without them. It's a beautiful story about love trauma and the fluid nature of family relationships. Here's a song from The Light in the Piazza, performed by Renee Fleming. It's from one of the final moments in the show, when Margaret explains to Clara that love isn't always a fairy tale. But it's something worth seeking out, even if it means risking everything. It's called Fable. Renee Fleming, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Great to be here. So I got very clear instructions to refer to you as a soprano and not an opera singer. Um, you sing. <laughs> well, using every soprano's bigger than an, than yeah, an opera singer. It's a bigger umbrella. That's right. You sing every kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> I I watched you on Elvis Costello's old TV show singing a country song. Wow, that's a, that is obscure. Um, <laughs> Nobody have I, I don't think anybody's ever said that to me. In this show, which you did in London and are now doing in Los Angeles, you're going to be doing it in Chicago and elsewhere, actually. Right. It's a relatively operatic musical theater piece. Are you singing with a microphone? Yes, which is strange because um, it's tough to get over this 
kind of uh, gnawing feeling that I have absolutely no control over what things sound like because I'm used to controlling the acoustic myself. You mean like and, in, the, in the room when you're not amplified? Yeah, because we're never amplified. We're very rarely amplified in classical right. music. We're the only ones left. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes that can be really hard uh, if it's a bad acoustic or dry and you have to sort of make it work, whereas a microphone can cure all ills when it comes to that. But now that I'm now that I'm used to it, I you know I, I can really kind of lean in and enjoy, and let you know you're you're really entrusting your sound to other people. And a weird microphone that comes out of your hair. That's, <laughs> That's right. The other thing. Yes, <laughs> the side <laughs> like, of our face. Exactly. You can only manage it so much. You know yeah. what I mean? Somebody's glued it to your face, and it's now true. It's, it's time to go. <laughs> I know it's it casts a shadow. No question. Tell me, how do you? manage your acoustics when you're not amplified, when you're in an opera house or a, you know, a church or a wherever you might be singing classical music? It's kind of neat. I'm glad you asked me about this because it's really a refined sort of skill. And it's taken me decades to feel like I can go into any space and by the end of the concert feel like it's okay. I found the position or the the overtones in the voice or the set of pitches in my voice that really liked this room, even if everything else didn't. Whereas when I was young, I would just panic and tense up and, you know, really struggle and fight the room. So now it's, it's really just sort of working with it. What are you doing? Are you like wandering around beforehand, clapping your hands and saying yodel, yodel, yodel or something? That's what I'm imagining. Well, we, there's some something like that in that we'll have a sound check and we'll figure out if it's orchestra, there's not much I can do. But if I'm with a piano, we can play around with the position of the piano, up, you know, downstage, upstage, and sort of find the space that's best for me. You know, there are two sets of acoustics. It's the one you hear when you're on stage. You know, how does that sound? How do I? How does my voice sound coming back to me? And there's the one that you hear when you're in the hall. And, you know, some amazing performing arts centers and have halls that sound fantastic if you're in the audience and horrible if you're on stage. So the best ones are great on both sides. Do you sing differently in a bigger room than a smaller room? I'm always thinking about projecting. You know, we're like ventriloquists. You know, we're just throwing the voice. And so I'm always thinking, can that be heard? Can that be understood? So you, there's that a little added pressure. Both your parents were music teachers, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Where did they teach? Upstate New York, Rochester, New York. I mean, my mother's still teaching full-time. She's, yeah, behind every diva is a bigger diva. <laughs> and, uh, they, you know, so we, we really grew up with it. Were they working at home or in schools or? Um, public school, starting in, you know, public school, high school. Vocal music, so, you know, choruses, musicals, voice class, all of that. And my mother's been actually at the University of Rochester Eastman School of Music in their continuing ed department for a long time. So uh, she teaches privately. Was it just expected that you would sing and maybe, like, play a piano in the house? Absolutely. We we all did. I thought everyone did. You can imagine my surprise. <laughs> Sports, what's that? <laughs> People do that? We constantly uh, sang in the car, you know, everywhere, the whole family. How many people were in your family? Uh, five. So it was, yeah, it was really, um, it was just a way of life. I mean, I, it, I didn't really, I loved music, but I loved it my own way. And I w did not have the performer gene. I absolutely was too shy. I really didn't enjoy performing for a long time. 
Was everyone in your family equally on board for this lifestyle? Not in the end, no. No. Although, you know, it, I'll tell you what what lifestyle they do have. They're all teachers. So they've all stuck with with that. And my brother teaches um, middle school technology uh, my, and sings with a band for fun. My sister is at Temple University, a very high level, actually, Dr. Fleming, teaching vocal pedagogy for music theater students. So she's uh, super high level. She helps me now. And uh, my little brother sings in the uh, Houston Grand Opera Chorus. So he did kind of follow in the track. Did you always accept and embrace that path? Or was there a point in your childhood where you were like, ugh, this is lame? Oh, I never accepted and embraced it. I, I wanted to be, I actually wanted to be first lady president. Isn't that sad? Like the job's still open. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> I thought you meant it was a sad ambition. That's not a sad ambition. No. That's a perfectly good ambition. But no. yes, it's sad that that should has have not been yet a occurred. a bunch of them by now. So that, I, I was ambitious. I definitely had that gene. Were you like a good grade getter? I read somewhere that your middle school nickname was Miss Perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was, I, I was, I was, yeah, I was, um, you know, I, I just really was a good girl trying to do the right thing all the time. And, uh, but I wanted to be, I loved animals. I really got involved with horses. That was a big part of my upbringing too. And so veterinarian was on the list. Um, singing was not on the list. Can you know when you are singing classical music and opera particularly, whether you've got what it takes to do it when you are like a teenager? No, you can't. You, you know, the voice matures slowly. So, you you know, I when I was growing up, basically what I ultimately found out is your voice doesn't really mature until you're in your 30s. So in your teens, you can kind of know that you might, you're talented. You might hear a quality in the sound that's interesting, but there's so much more that has to happen before you can call yourself a professional singer. You want to know what, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have to be able to perform in a lot of languages. So, and that takes a tremendous amount of skill and time to cultivate them. Um, we have to learn style. So it's hundreds of years of music from different countries and all of which at different periods, uh, in different periods have their own style. And then we have to be able to move on stage and act and wear wigs and, and wear massive period costumes. And you know, it's a lot that goes into it. It is a truly extraordinary production. For a minute, I, I when I was in high school, I worked changing light bulbs at the San Francisco Opera and um, you know that's a scary job. Yeah, they were non-essential light light bulbs, largely like those, like the little ones that are in the side of the chair that you sit in in the audience. Oh, okay, not the yeah, ones in the, the chandelier. All the the well, the ones in the chandelier came down on like chain. The oh, whole okay. chandelier came down, like the whole center panel of the of the roof came down. Wow, all the way down. You had to go up into the roof to lower it, but then you change it from the ground. You didn't have to do any of that, none of no, the ceiling. I, I didn't have to. I, I helped out. I handed light bulbs to the guy who did, that <laughs> who did times. it. But it is a truly extraordinary thing to see from backstage, mm -hmm. like just the volume of not just people, but like stuff that's involved right. in a large-scale yeah. opera production. It is. It's amazing. There can be 200 people backstage. First of all, it's the art form that brings together all of the arts because 
you have the orchestra and the chorus and the sets and the costumes and the design of it all, storytelling. It's it's pretty major, and they're long. You know, they go from sort of three to five hours normally. Did you like it when you were a teenager? I didn't have that much experience with it, and you know, we didn't have access to it on television. It didn't that didn't start really until I was in undergraduate school, and then I I found it pretty awesome. The first the first uh, opera I saw on television was with Luciano Pavarotti. When you think of the generation before me that got it on the radio. You know, and then there was a little bit of television, and finally PBS started in the 60s, and ultimately you had Live from the Met, so, and Live from Lincoln Center, and, and that was, you know, that now, now people really have access to it. So, but I think the HD broadcasts from the Met are phenomenally well done, very compelling. Um, the acting has improved tremendously, and, you know, this is history playing out on stage. Were you doing it? because you were on that path and you were a good kid? I would say to some degree because I, my real passion in undergraduate school was jazz. So I thought for sure I was going to follow that track. And I had every intention of following that track, except you know, when I got the offer to go on tour with Illinois Jaquette, I just was too afraid. That seemed too big of a step. So I went to graduate school instead. And then I just never went back to it. I mean, that's really something to get a real offer. I mean, were you were you going to be like a featured vocalist yes. in the Illinois Jaquette band? Exactly. Yeah, that's. I think that's what the plan was. And uh, I just, you know, going back to that sort of shy person that I was and not being that much of an extrovert, I just went the safe route for me, which was academia. Were you doing shows other than uh, other than you know cl- clubs and bars with the jazz trio or oh, whatever? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I was in uh, mostly operas. Uh, you know, once a year or twice a year, they'd have something like that, and you'd have oratorios. And it, yeah, it's definitely part of the training. I mean, you couldn't get anything but a classical music training until relatively recently. Now there are a lot of music theater programs. Berkeley has jazz. There's there's not a lot of jazz. So you were kind of on your own, and thank goodness I didn't do it because I would have failed. Uh, I'm sure I would have failed. I, I definitely chose the right path. Why do you think that you would have failed? Because in my generation, I don't know that you could really earn a living as a jazz singer. I, I just I like the idea that going into opera was the safe bet. <laughs> no, I yeah, uh, <laughs> earning well, a living wise, it was sort of established. You know, there are opera houses. It's very international. Yeah, I was in Europe a lot, so it was a, a terrific lifestyle and a fascinating one. We'll wrap up with Renee Fleming in just a minute. Stay with us. When we return, she'll give me singing advice. One of the greatest singers in the world, and one of the worst singers in the world. What a combination. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smartwater. Smartwater is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smartwater created two new ways to hydrate. Smartwater Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smartwater Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smartwater by saying, Alexa, Order smart water. Smart water. That's pretty smart. Halloween is supposed to be a scary time of the year, but you've seen the news. Real life is so scary. Racism is so scary. Climate change is so scary. Fear in an age of real life horror on NPR's Code Switch. 
this is Amy Mann. And I'm Ted Leo. And we have a podcast called The Art of Process. We've been lucky enough over the past year to talk to some of our friends and acquaintances from across the creative spectrum to find out how they actually work. And so I have to write material that makes sense and makes people laugh. I also have to think about what I'm saying to people. If I kick your ass, I'll make you famous. The fight to get LGBTQ representation in the show. Mm-hmm. We weirdly don't know as many musicians as you would expect. I really just became a political speechwriter by accident, realizing that I have accidentally uh, pulled my pants down. <laughs> Listen and subscribe at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast. It's like if the guinea pig was complicit in helping the scientist. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Renee Fleming. She's known as America's Diva. She's performed for presidents and royalty and at the Super Bowl. Let's get back into our conversation. Why don't we hear a little bit of my guest, Renee Fleming, singing jazz. I have a duet with you singing with a a past guest of this show, Gregory Porter, a song called Central Park Serenade. Been away much too long Another minute I'll be gone My missing new days are all through I'll take an early flight I'll take a taxi ride And I'll be there And, and I'll, I'll be, be there, there in no time flat Good to be back, good to be back again I don't know why, I don't know why I ever left But I'm coming back now When you're singing with somebody who has a, a beautiful jazz voice like Gregory Porter does is there just always like a part of you who just wants to like blow out a window because uh, <laughs> you can do that? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's so funny because um, even doing the things that I'm doing now with like the piazza, I always want, I always think, oh, gosh, my voice is really naturally much higher than this. So, yeah, you, you want to kind of just go up the octave and say, yep, that's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> But there's also like, I mean, I, I'm not enough of a singer or a music expert to describe the differences between the quality of sound in an operatic performance and a jazz performance. But obviously, you know, like a, a jazz performance uses the microphone to establish a kind of conversational intimacy, um, right. especially in like a wordy in a, in a wordy song where, you know, the conversational right. part is particularly yeah, important. Exactly. Well, and also the improvisation piece is, I'm in awe of that. I'm a huge jazz fanatic. I mean, I listen all the time. That's probably my favorite thing to listen to. And I, I'm just amazed at what the musicians can do. And now I know science has told me that improvisation is the best thing you can do for your brain. It's amazing. Do you sing at home, like when you're not practicing? No, not very much. Not even like when you're cooking or something? No. Does it feel like work? Um, no, I just, I'm, I'm happy to have the vocal rest. I'd rather listen. You know, I'm still very much attached to music and I'm often learning things, but I do it more in my head. What do you listen to? Jazz. Yeah, for fun. I mean, when I have time, um, it's sort of, it's very calming. It's something that uh, is a touchstone for me. My first major touchstone was Joni Mitchell. And so it's really just coming back to kind of the things that I love, you know, in classical, of course, um, but probably more instrumental music. I love piano. You know, I have to say I don't have a huge amount of leisure time. I'm mostly I'm learning so much music all the time. 
Is that because your work so often involves like two and three night stands of a certain set of repertoire and then you're off to Sydney and then you're that's off right. to Shanghai? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, and I have no one to blame on myself because I'm, yeah, I'm in charge of my calendar and I'm in charge of what I sing, but I, I just always feel like I want to keep doing new things. So I'm always learning new music. And I have a big tour this year with a Russian pianist. It's all new. So I try to sneak that in in advance so it's not all at once. That must have been particularly hard. I was thinking about this because the life of an opera singer is so uh, peripatetic. Like, it must have been particularly hard when you have kids, right? Right. When your kids were younger, it must have been a particularly difficult. Because even like a touring musician like Joni Mitchell, right. when she was making more music, like even there, they're, they're, they're on the road a couple months a year. But the rest of the time, you know, they're at home and in the studio or whatever. It must have been it must have been a lot coming at you when you were managing, you know, flying to Sydney in addition to feeding children. Well, I took them with me as much as possible and they have, you know, they've seen the world twice over. So they feel grateful to have had that experience. And we had a blast. You know, we had a lot of fun on the road. But, you know, when they were really in school, I didn't want to homeschool them. I just didn't feel, I felt like that was too much. So then I started reducing my time away. And that's when opera came in handy because, especially to live in New York, to be able to sing at the Met twice a year and have those long periods, you know, and then you track in the holidays and pretty soon it gets to look a little bit more normal. A little bit more like the schedule of an actual human being. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not quite. Not really, but closer. I want to play a little bit of you singing some music that is probably among the most unusual music that any legendary singer of opera, any great opera diva has ever recorded, which is you recorded a few Bjork songs. Can you tell me before we hear some of it, how that came to pass? Why that was what you wanted to take on? Well, I was in Scandinavia anyway, recording and this beautiful new piece. And I thought, you know what? She's a soprano, incredible artist. So I really am singing these in my classical voice. I thought, what could I do that's more popular that would go with an, in an orchestral concert? And, and I'm doing these with the New York Philharmonic this season. So um, it's, it's working. And they're beautiful. I really love them. And Hans Eck, who did these orchestrations, did a great job of kind of bringing to life the her version of these songs in orchestra. Let's take a listen to my guest, Renee Fleming, singing Bjork. sang a few years ago the national anthem at the Super Bowl. Right. Um, you did a very good job. Thank you. Uh, you almost convinced me it's a good song. That's how, <laughs> that's, that's how good a job you did. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I mean, for everyone. It's, so this is the thing about it, right? Like, right. Number one, 
I, you know, I'm not going to ask you to opine about the quality of the national anthem as a song. It's not my favorite song. <laughs> You know, well, if I were to pick one that everyone could sing, I would pick America the Beautiful. Right. Yeah, you that's know. a nicer song. It's too. not such a big range. The words are a little easier to understand. Yeah, have a little bit more to do with America and not just one war that happened yeah. one time. <laughs> um, so there's that, right? And it's a difficult song for for many singers to sing. Although I'm sure you were able to manage it. You're a pretty skilled singer. Um, but like beyond that, and beyond even the fact that there's 75,000 people in the stadium and 50 million people are 150 million people watching, whatever it is. Yeah. Like you're also in the middle of a football field. Right. <laughs> like, and I'm sure it's the best sound engineers of football fields in the world who are, you know, uh, running your in-ear monitor or whatever. <laughs> but... <laughs> like it's bananas <laughs> like what wow. a crazy context I well first of all there's a, like a six second delay so you're singing and your voice and your face are six seconds behind you much louder it's hard it takes a lot of concentration in the rehearsal they even brought in the Black Hawk helicopters to practice that so you'd have a sense of what that was going to be like but they couldn't practice what it was going to be like to have the crowd you know, making a huge amount of sound at the video that they were showing. So it was, you know, thank God it was so well prepared, but it, it, it is hugely challenging. What do you do to prepare? I mean, I, I'm sure you get a sound check, but like, do you fly in the week before and talk to somebody who's done it before or something? For me, it was really about just practicing a lot. And uh, it's mental preparation more than anything else. Fortunately, I did have a sound person that I knew um, that was helpful. So I had one little in-ear piece so I could hear the track. And I created the track. So, you know, we had to sort of shop around and see who could play it. And we had to raise money to pay for the track. And, you know, it was quite a shame. And we had to do it all in secret because they call you a month before, but you can't say a word until the day before. So it, it was quite a fascinating experience. I mean, when you think that it's mostly pop stars who have big labels behind them, who have mountains of people supporting them, it was just me. So it was a, a completely different um, kind of an experience than anything I've ever done. So you're singing to track. Does that include there's there's like a chorus? Is the chorus live or is that on the track? Everything had to be done to track. They don't take any chances except me, but everything else had to be done to track. I was live. Well, let's take a listen to my guest, Renee Fleming, making the national anthem sound good. What kind of artistic choices do you make when you're 
singing the national anthem for two. I'm upgrading it. I went from 50 to 150, and now I'm making it 250 million people. I don't know how many people watch the <laughs> Super Bowl. It was 110 exactly. million. Okay, 110 million people. When you're going to sing, that's a big number. Yeah, that weird song for 110 million people. What artistic choices are you making? Well, Vera Wang. Uh, is a friend of mine did my dress and which is now in the Smithsonian. So we're both pretty proud of that. So that was exciting because it was supposed to be freezing cold. Half the worry was about how are you going to do this in the freezing cold weather. So it turned out the weather was not so bad. I had performed before with the military courses and orchestras and bands, and so putting together an ensemble uh, who were they were great because I didn't want to be by myself. I could have been. I could have done anything. I could have sung an acapella. Just walked out in jeans and a, and a blouse and sung an acapella. But no, no, no. You, so you really do get to imagine and figure out what your version is. Um, so that, that was a whole month of trauma, you know, of just national anthem, here we come. Did you feel responsible for delivering Vera Wang-level yes. glamour? Not glamour. No, no, sorry. No, I felt responsible representing the whole classical music world. If nobody ever gets invited again from the classical world to do this, it's my fault. You know, it was really an amazing opportunity. Uh, you know, so, and I did, re- you know, I felt responsible also to my father and my uncles. And, you know, they're all incredibly patriotic. And to just doing a good job. Not forgetting the words. That is not a small thing. This is a, we all know the national anthem. We sing it in our sleep. I even grew, grew up saying it, you know, uh, versions of it all the time in schools. And um, so you you definitely don't want to mess it up in that moment when every all eyes are on you. Do you choose to dress glamorously when you are performing? I feel like there are two ways to dress when you're singing classical music. Uh, one is in some kind of like plain black thing that pretends to be nothing. All the video I've seen of you performing, you look, first of all, you look spectacular. You look beautiful, but in a very grand way. So you're are, when you say plain black, are you thinking of the orchestra? Yeah, I'm just thinking of like you could wear something where the point of it is don't look at what I'm wearing. I don't know any uh, singers who do that. I, I you know the women in certainly in my history and it, a lot of it was walking on stage and that first impression, the image. And the audience has that expectation. You want you really want to hear the audience go, <gasps> buzz, buzz, buzz. So, um, so that's part of it. It's definitely part of it. If I'm on stage in front of the orchestra and they're all wearing black, and I'm wearing black, then you know, considering how visual we are now and how we expect our entertainment to be visual, that would be kind of disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you're wearing a lot of uh, garments that I would describe as architectural. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of like wings I'll and take it. grand yeah. capes, yeah. and it's it's fantastic. <laughs> it's one of my it was one of my favorite things. Of, I mean, I like an outfit, but it was one of my favorite things of watching clips of you <laughs> perform. Was every one there was a different there was a different fit. And yeah. I was like, yeah, looking looking good. I want to be able to say to the audience, I had to buy an actual. Uh, extra seat on the airplane to bring this dress here. <laughs> you know, then I, you know, then they think they're getting their money's worth, right? <laughs> you have been doing a little bit of musical theater lately. Not least the show that you're performing here in Los Angeles, but you also were in uh, New York a year or two ago. Um, were you scared about musical theater acting, or I don't know if you danced in either of these shows, but dancing? 
No, no dancing. Um, Is that a rule? If you got a good offer, though. No, I nobody. If you wants have somebody offered me. you Oklahoma right now, but they said well, you got to do the hoedown. <laughs> I don't remember well, if there's a hoedown. Yeah, in there's Oklahoma, dancing but... and there's there's dancing. Yeah. <laughs> no, the acting didn't scare me because I'm um, opera's acting. You know, it's it's just uh, this role that I'm doing uh, the, in the Light in the Piazza is really hard because there's a ton of dialogue. Um, Carousel was not. It was. It's really like it was. It's very similar to opera. It's just eight shows a week, but this role is really hard because I I have several monologues actually where I'm speaking alone for some time, and in the rehearsal process, you know, I just said, my gosh, there's no sound underneath me. If I don't speak, nothing happens. There's no music. There's no orchestra. There's nothing that plays that sort of you know is a prompt. If if in opera, if you drop a line, the music keeps going and other people come in. It's like a river. So, and other people jump in when they're supposed to. Here, if you drop a line, you can throw off six other people who are waiting for that line. And you have a long silence, hoping someone will speak up. So it is it is different. It's a different skill set. Absolutely. Was that the part that made you nervous? I feel like for me, in your shoes, I think the part that would have made me nervous was the kind of vulnerability, not like letting everybody else down by dropping a line, like, because you can, you can work on memorizing, you know what I mean? Like, you can just put in the extra hours yeah. until you, there's no way you can mess that up. Right. But it's the, like, being open, and even in, you know, the relatively presentational musical theater acting, you're still, it's a, largely about being open and receiving others and reacting. But that's the same with opera. That's no. That's not any different. Opera's theater, so it just happens that we're singing all the time. But there's, you know, there's plenty of room in that for musicality. For in fact, and compared with Carousel, for instance, which is a big ensemble piece, by the time we hit opening night, they said it's frozen. I said, "What do you mean it's frozen?" They said, "Your line readings, everything you do in the show, should stay the same every day." So we never do that in classical music. You want to keep finding new ways of expressing, new ways of, of bringing an emotional response from the audience. And it, so it's, that surprised me a little bit. So this shows at LA Opera and Placido Domingo just resigned as general director of LA Opera after a number of women accused him of sexual harassment. Was that a reputation you'd heard or did it come as a surprise to you? Um, I it came as a surprise to me because I knew him as like an incredibly charming colleague. You know, did he love women? Yes, and orchestra loved him, audiences loved him. I adored working with him, so I hadn't heard anything else uh, beyond that, and it was that piece of it was a surprise. It must have been hard to hear. Well, I mean, listen, we've been hearing this all year about a lot of different people. Um, there's a huge spectrum of behavior. And uh, what I've seen change in our business already is that on the first day of rehearsal for any given production, there's an announcement with a whole list of procedures if anybody feels uncomfortable, which is f fabulous. And, you know, here's who you got to talk to. Here's what happens. And so people feel now that there is a way uh, of of reacting when they feel like something is happening that is really not appropriate in the workplace. So um, I 
I really hope that that's the case in every business. It should be. And that has been, I, you know, with any luck, the most positive thing to come out of this. I want my, I have two daughters, so I want them to feel 100% safe where they work. Have you always felt safe where you worked, either in opera or in other parts of entertainment? I've been really, really lucky. Not only have I felt safe, but I felt cherished. You know, as a soprano, the diva of any production, I thought, wow, I'm in the best business. You know, what's an opera without the soprano, without the heroine who typically dies at the end? You know, the stories <laughs> are not so great with women, I have to say. You know, women are the victims throughout the history of opera. But in, in real life, it's been pretty wonderful. How did you get into the the science stuff that you're into lately. You've helped partner with uh, the Kennedy Center and the NIH uh, on some music brain science recently. Was that always an interest of yours, or was it something that came to you from elsewhere? Well, I, you know, this this challenge of singing well um, and really exploring that, you know, it, it's, it requires you to really know yourself and go in deep in terms of process, the technical part of it, the career part of it, all of it. I became interested in in sort of physiology and, and certainly in psychology and performance psychology. I had a lot of pain, somatic pain from performance pressure. So I just was reading, like armchair reading. And I noticed that scientists were looking at music in the brain. And I just thought, wow, what, why are they researching music? Sorry, what does somatic pain mean? I don't know. It's just pain. It's pain that is really caused by your mind basically. And it, it's a way of avoiding things. You know, a lot of men have pain, uh, back pain when they're angry. And it's only recently been sort of accepted by the medical field that this is possible, that your emotional state can bring on pain as a way of either distracting you or a way of expressing what you're feeling. I mean, I'm a migraine sufferer, so I, I, <laughs> you, uh, if medical science ever disagreed with that, they could have had a chat with me. <laughs> I feel very intimately the relationship between my mental and emotional state and oh, physical pain. That would be a powerful manifestation, no question. Um, so anyway, that got me interested in it, and and then I met Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institutes of Health, because I've been a um, consultant to the Kennedy Center now for a number of years. And I said, well, what do you think about these two amazing institutions collaborating? You know, we could provide a platform for science, for the audience. And, and as he said, maybe there's something to be learned from us. You know, what is creativity? What is the nature of creativity? And how does it, how does it fuel our innovation in, in our society? So it's been a really phenomenal collaboration. And I'm, I've given about 30 presentations around North America going to China for all of this month, doing them there as well. And I always present with scientists um, who have an audience then share their work. It's great. It's really exciting. And, you know, it's all about sort of understanding the brain. And music in particular has kind of has an effect on more parts of the brain than any other activity. Has it informed your work as a musician? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, uh, and and in improvisation, as I said, is really powerful because you have to shut off that part of you that judges in order to even be able to do it. So, yeah, it makes me think a lot about um, who we are as human beings. And what I keep coming back to is evolution. Modern history is such a tiny portion of the um, scale of, of human existence. 
And until, you know, recently, communication, um, there was so much about, you know, the rhythmic elements of music, the tonal elements of music. There was so much about expressive and creative qualities that we had as human beings that really kept us together. The social bonding piece is important. And today, obviously, we're not doing real well, well in, that, in that category. So it, it is really a fascinating field to be involved in. I'm uh, going on tour with a comedy podcast that I'm the co-host of called Judge John Hodgman in a couple of weeks. Oh, great. And I'm going to be singing a couple of songs. I haven't sung in public since I was, except for one mm. Judge John Hodgman show a, a few months ago. I haven't since, since I was 16. Okay. And was in a high school musical theater uh, production of Little Shop of Horrors. Okay. Got any hot tips? Just courage. Honestly, there's, you don't have to have any special quality. You don't even have to sing in tune. The more style you have, the more quirky personality you have, the more people will like it. I don't think you need to worry. Thank you, Renee. That's very nice of you. <laughs> have fun. Just have fun with it. Renee Fleming, thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. You too. Renee Fleming. She'll perform Light in the Piazza again this December in Chicago. And before that, she's performing a few dates in various spots around the world. She's also a fierce advocate for arts education. You can find out more about all that by visiting our website. Go to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week was spotted a turtle riding a sofa cushion around the lake. Nature in Her Majesty. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And we've got all kinds of past episodes of Bullseye that you should go check out. Not just in your podcast app, although your podcast app is a great place to look, but also uh, on our website, on Facebook, on YouTube. You can also find Bullseye on social media. We're at Bullseye on Twitter. You should follow us there. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We'll probably be on TikTok soon. I'm working on my clown transformations. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.